I thank you guys so much. Uh, it's such a blessing to be here with you guys. It's growing, thinking through scripture and truth together with you. Um, so we're kind of continuing this theme of one mission, right, from where we were Friday night to discipleship is this lifestyle, to the different expressions of that lifestyle. So discipleship this morning, we saw it's kind of a, it can be grown and expressed through the way we give grace in our speech. And today we're actually going to think about prayer and how prayer can be a means of discipleship, a, a way to kind of organize our relationships around Christ, to organize our hearts, and to help actually organize the hearts of other people around who God is. And to start with that, I want to actually just pray for us um, and just to kind of help organize our hearts around God. Let me pray for us. And dear God, there's uh, maybe a lot of things right now we might be tempted to organize our hearts around, or maybe we're tired, and that is kind of maybe how we want to organize our world, or how we feel, uh, feeling drained, maybe discouraged, uh, convicted, maybe there's uh, some questions we have from past messages or conversations, there's things going on back home, there's just things that might be wanting to be front and center, but they could distract us. And so Lord, I pray that we would think about who you are. That you are good. That you sovereignly have allowed everything that is taking place in our lives as part of your kindness to us, as part of your work of redemption. Lord, you have brought us to this place now. You've given us your word. I pray that you would organize our thoughts and our hearts around magnifying you. Oh Lord, our hearts naturally want to diminish you minimize you, but we pray that you would increase, and that we would decrease, and as we decrease that we would have a better, clearer understanding of ourselves, and our lives, and reality, because you are made so great. Um, may that happen in our hearts tonight, and, and give us wisdom to know how to do that regularly as we pray, and as we pray together. In Christ's name I pray. Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to uh, Psalm 40. You know, it is really a blessing to be with you tonight. I'm happy to get to talk about prayer with you after we've been maybe studying and discussing a lot of truth. I hope we can focus on some simple, elemental things tonight. And I'm going to go a little bit shorter than usual because I want to make sure you have plenty of time to pray together after this. But I want to start by simply asking, why do we pray? Why do you pray? What goes through your mind? Or perhaps the simplest answer is, I need to. It's a bit like asking, why do you breathe? And you could say, I breathe because I'm supposed to. Or, it makes me feel better. Life goes poorly if I don't. <laughs> it's a habit that I have. But, but the deepest and simplest answer is, I need to breathe. I think if when we are honest, the reason we pray is, I need to pray. It's the door of life. If I don't pray, I perish. If I don't, I go insane. I lose touch with reality. But knowing those things don't guarantee that our prayers will be good. I hear some of the prayer ruts that I can fall into, and maybe you may relate. So I can see prayer as a wish list. This is my, my bucket list for God, telling him all the ways I want him to kind of make my life work. Or I can see prayer as kind of a good luck charm, almost like a rabbit's foot. This is what I do to try to ensure that bad things don't happen and to ensure good things do happen in my life. I can see prayer as a religious habit. 
Right? It's a habit that separates the religious from the irreligious. I know I'm a good Christian because I'm praying like I should be. It makes me feel like more of a Christian. I can think prayer is a mantra. It's something that I just repeat to try to evoke feelings of peace inside, maybe using stock religious phrases, like just lead, guide, and direct. I can see prayer as a reflex. It's something that just happens, maybe at the beginning of a worship service, or the beginning of a meeting, or the beginning of a meal, that says, this is just that thing I do at, at this point in time in life, right? It's just, I'm going to pray right now. It can be a caboose, kind of like a way of wrapping things up. Well, let's close in prayer. Um, it can just become merit points, right? Getting extra credit with God because of the amount of time I spend praying. And then we can also not only pray with the wrong heart, we can also just avoid prayer altogether. So here's the reasons I might not pray. I might feel like I'm just wandering in the weeds. Like I, when I pray, I might feel disoriented, grasping for ideas looking for things to say about someone that I don't really feel too familiar with. I can't talk about God in an intelligent way right now, so I'd rather not pray. Um, there's this famous quote by Michael Scott from The Office that I kind of relate to uh, when I'm praying this way sometimes. He says, sometimes I'll start a sentence, and I don't even know where it's going. I just hope I find it along the way. <laughs> Maybe that's what prayer feels like to you sometimes. So you avoid it. I, I think another reason I don't pray and maybe you don't pray, is we can be comfortable with sin. So we don't want to process the sin with God or confess it. I don't want to expose, I don't want to deal with it. Or maybe prayer is too discouraging. It just reveals how far I am from God, how paralyzed, how stuck I feel as a Christian in my walk with God. So there are times when I fail to pray, and there are times when I pray where I kind of lose the heart of what prayer is meant to be. Thankfully, you and I have Romans 8.26 that says the Spirit prays for us, no matter what, in all our weaknesses. But please don't use Romans 8.26 as a reason not to pray. And we pray because we need to. And as we grow as Christians, there's a growing understanding of what need means. I need to because I need God. In fact, I want God. I want more of Him. The more I know Him, the more I love Him. I need to center my mind on Christ. I need, I need to rehearse my story of redemption with him because my heart keeps telling me that my life is a bad story, not a story of redemption. I need to rehearse the deliverances of my faithful God because my heart keeps pointing out the unsolvable dilemmas of life and filling my mind with hopelessness. I need to have an honest conversation about the troubles I'm feeling and facing take a step toward hoping in the one who controls it all. We would all say that we need to pray, but do we see our real need clearly? We might say, I need to pray so I don't get angry. I need to pray for my friend's surgery to go well. And prayer isn't less than those things, but the deepest reason we need to pray is we need God. And only prayer can direct our hearts and lives toward God. So this is our first point, why do we pray? We need God, and prayer directs our hearts and lives to God. To help us understand this, I want to read Psalm 40, and to take a few moments to just walk through what David is, is kind of doing in Psalm 40. This is Psalm 40. To the choir master, a psalm of David, I waited patiently for the Lord, 
He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverances within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see they are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. So I don't know if you can feel this, but in Psalm 40, David is kind of establishing this human link with us. We can relate to him. And that's not an accident. He wrote it for a choir master. He wrote it to help a group of people direct their hearts and lives to God, not just for himself. And we are part of that group that he is helping. David, in a way, is discipling us tonight. He is like this mature Christian friend putting his arm around our shoulder and saying, Brother, sister, the stuff you're facing, I'm familiar with what it feels like. Let me tell you about who God has himself to be in my life over and over. He's saying, I waited for God and he delivered me. And his deliverance woke me up once again to the reality of who my God is and what his hair is like. So I wrote a song. A song about trusting the Lord alone and not hoping in the lives of the proud or bowing down to the idols they worship or waiting on their gods to deliver me. I waited on my God to deliver me. And he did. And he set my feet on the rock of my relationship with him. And then David talks about the relentless care and endless mercies that just pour into his life from God. He describes the actions of God and the thoughts of God as countless. He's saying, God, you never stop speaking into my life, not for a second. You never stop working good in my life, not for a second. Nothing can stop you. 
not even me. My heart grows weary from all my sin, but even that will not make you hold back your mercy. Your sin, my, my sin doesn't slow down your care in my life. You are just as active, just as kind from the day I met you. He says in verses 6 through 8, you are not waiting for me to perform religious ceremonies. You're not hoping I will pray enough, obey enough, read my Bible enough, sing enough, go to enough retreats, attend church enough. Verses 6 through 8 is actually cited in Hebrews 5 through 7, sorry, Hebrews 10, 5 through 7, to contrast Christ's perfect obedience to show that his righteous life is the key that unlocks acceptance with God. He is my hope. And none of my failures can take that key away from me. And David tastes that even before the cross. None of my failures can rob me of your righteousness, O oh God. Right? David says, you have given me this relationship. And that's what he means by you have given me this open ear. And this relationship is all about what you want for me and how you graciously keep my ear open. And you keep speaking to me. You help me hear even when I've spent a thousand hours listening to the world, meditating on the deceits of my heart, and maybe spending 45 minutes kind of listening to a sermon. And you keep my ear open. And then living under the waterfall of this endless mercy, notice what David says in verse 8. I delight to do your will. Oh my God. Your law is within my heart. So he's saying, what drives my obedience is you, is desire. It's I, it's, I want this. I want to tell people about you. I want to talk about your faithfulness. I want to demonstrate your love to others. And even when more people show up to hurt me, or when I turn back to my sin, I will hope in your deliverance. I will rejoice and be glad in you. Not in my performance, not in my circumstances. Trials will come. Temptations will pull me from hoping in you again and again. But I will rejoice and be glad in you. And David closes the psalm by arriving at this clear self-knowledge and places it right next to the knowledge of God. He says, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. And this final verse is what led me to choose the psalm for our study tonight. Because this is what we receive in prayer. In accurate self-knowledge. As for me, I am poor and needy. And a clear reminder of who God is. You are my help and my deliverer. And as I live in this posture of I now see myself because I see you clearly, something changes in our hearts. There is this reordering of our loves. I remember why God is worthy to be loved. With all my heart, with all my life. I repent of the places my heart has gone. I turn back to him. I see once again, this is why I need God. And I direct my heart and my life back to him. So I want to illustrate our need to pray. Um, excuse me, this. I want to illustrate our need to pray with my life. So I'm a counseling pastor. So I need to pray a lot. Um, so what happens 
For instance, if I'm walking with someone who is depressed, and they're struggling with sleep, they're withdrawing from their relationships, they're, they have a low energy level, they're despairing of life, they're full of maybe condemnation, what happens if I don't pray for them? Even if I read like every counseling book, biblical counseling book on depression, even if I know every Bible verse on being downcast, if I do not pray, there's a problem. If I do not pray, then there's this gap in my ministry that is bearing witness that I think no outside help is needed or wanted or available. There's a faith commitment driving why I would not pray for someone or process someone's struggle through prayer. This is not just absent-mindedness that keeps us from prayer. What is demonstrated in my prayerlessness when I counsel is a powerful faith that says, I believe that my insight, my care, my concern, my action plan, my expertise, my experiences, and the the, the abilities resonant within me are enough. And I believe that the person I'm walking with does not need refuge. They do not need a greater shepherd apart from me. They do not need strength given them from the outside supernaturally. They do not need the power of someone else to be merciful and strong in us to help us learn, in them to help them learn how to love. If there is no prayer in me, then there will be no, no thankfulness either. Because if I'm not asking for anything, then I'm not thankful for what God gives Whether or not I pray reveals what I believe about everything that really matters. And when I do not pray, I am automatically man-centered about everything. So what will keep us in touch with true reality and our need for God? Only prayer. Look how David does it. In the midst of his sufferings, in the midst of his sins, and even in the midst of God's gracious comforts, how does he organize his heart around who his God is? So that he sees himself right in light of who God is. Look at how he describes his life and reorders his world. In verse 12, he sees himself as a sinner. He is someone who feels overtaken by sin. He's weary from it. Sin feels boundless, innumerable, and discouraging. And he's expressing his experience to God. But then in verses 14 and 15, he's a sufferer. He's also someone who's hurt by people. Either they literally want him dead, or they disrespect him, belittle him, shame him, malign him. And he feels their abuse. And he expresses what he is experiencing and what he feels to God. Yet throughout the psalm, you also see he is a saint. He's one of the redeemed. He's someone who knows the thoughts of God, who has access to God, who knows God will not withhold mercy in the face of constant sin. He knows God will make his steps secure even as he walks through the valleys of abuse. So he concludes the psalm not just with a summary, but with a freshly found identity. As for me, I poor needy but the Lord takes thought for me. That's not just his summary of what has happened. It's his conclusion of who he is. That's where prayer led him. 
You see, prayer is not an escape from reality. It's not a denial of reality. It's an awakening to who we truly are as we remember the God who governs our reality. Someone once said that prayer is like waking from a nightmare where we laugh at what we took so seriously inside the dream as we realized all was well. But it can also wake us up to the reality that we are in much more spiritual danger than we thought we were. For instance, if it's been a while since you prayed, you might come before God and say, God, is this really the first time I'm praying for you to be glorified in my education? Father, has it really been this long since I prayed, since I praised you personally for the thousands of ways you've been loving me this semester? Father, did I seriously just visit my family and not pray for your help to give me grace and love before I spend time with them? Through prayer, we reconnect our world with who God truly is. And in so doing, we regain sanity. This is help. We can be terribly messy, disorganized people, especially when it comes to our hearts. And I propose that prayer is how we begin to sort through the mess. We are sufferers, sinners, and saints like David, like every, every believer, every one of the redeemed. And we must take our hearts to God. And as we do that, not only is order restored to our worlds, but your relationship has deepened between you and your Father because you are seeing more clearly who He is and how much who He is matters in your life. Pastor and author Tim Keller says that prayer is how we existentially access our doctrinal convictions. Prayer is how we existentially access our doctrinal convictions. Think about that. How does your heart experience the doctrines of God's sovereignty? The doctrine of Christ's sufficiency. How do you experience it? Or the doctrines of of, of God's immutability. Without prayer, our hearts are kind of kept from connecting the dots of those doctrines to our lives. Without prayer, we separate those doctrines from a person and and a relationship, which is the only true way to understand doctrine. Your preaching is vital for proclaiming who God is. I I hope that our times together is making God more and more clear for you. Bible study, your devotions, your time in the Word is vital for hearing directly from the Spirit about who God is. But prayer is how our hearts experience those doctrines directly and personally. Look at Psalm 40 again. I mean, just briefly, how many doctrines can you find in these 17 verses? There's so many. There's the sovereignty of God, right? Because David sees that God is sovereign over his circumstances, over his relationships, even over his own walk with God. You put this song in my mouth. You gave me an open ear. You delivered me. The mercy of God is another doctrine, right? David sees God's mercy as unrestrainable. Nothing can stop God's mercy, and he does not tire of forgiving us. That's a doctrine, but it's a doctrine that is experienced. And I don't know if he would have experienced it without talking to God about it. The love of God, the omnipotence of God, the eternity of God, the faithfulness of God, the grace of God. We get to access 
all of these realities and experience them through prayer. We say to God, God, this is who you are. Therefore, this is how I see and understand my life. In prayer, we are taking the truth we know about God and the reality of our experiences in this life and bringing them together in our relationship with him. So what happens, what do you think happens in my heart while this is going on? So I'm seeing God more clearly. I'm loving him more. This is stirring up affections for him. It's causing a reordering of my loves for God. So through prayer, I'm confronted with the knowledge of who God truly is. It's creating a clear view of him, a deeper love, a deeper worship. What happens is we change. That's what happens. Like Sanctification happens. Prayer is also the place where change takes place in my heart, where I'm actually tracking my sanctification and seeing how God has come to me so much more to me than he once did. By the way, I think this is a good reason to be keeping a prayer journal, especially in college. In preparation for this message, I went back and I actually looked at my college prayer journals. I wasn't super faithful, but I did keep journals, random journals that are like half-filled. But I was able to see this is how I was thinking about God. And is that changed? Am I I grown since then? This is why the gospel is not simply a story of Jesus coming and expanding our internal intellect. Christ comes and provides a relationship with him, and he forms our lives. The gospel is not simply the story of our minds being awakened to fresh ideas and right thinking. We now long for someone. Someone we didn't long for before. Someone we didn't know at all. And now we long for him more than anything else in this life. That's the story of our worship. And prayer allows us to track that story. How it's grown. Who does Jesus mean to you now that he didn't mean to you in high school? So what does this look like? We must get this clear in our minds. The most basic way. What is the most basic way you are personally needing God? What is the most basic way you need God right now? And in that awareness of need, have an honest conversation with your God. Have a straight talk about life. Maybe out loud or in a journal. Rehearse who he is. Believe afresh that he cares and has the power to meet your needs. It might sound like, I exalt you, O God. Have mercy on me. Where are you? Protect me. Make me alive. Teach me truth in the inward heart. Return the joy of your salvation. Wash me. How long, O Lord? All of those sound bites point to our needs and a lens that exalts God. In prayer, we see that whatever is most wrong with us is accepted and patiently In prayer, we see that whatever is most urgently needed is shouldered by a God who cares and who promises to meet all of our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So why do we pray? We need God. And prayer directs our hearts and lives to him. The second point this evening is why pray together. And you probably know the answer to this. We need God, and praying together helps us direct our hearts and lives to him together. 
all of the wonderful blessings I just like listened to you about prayer is what we get to participate in together. So as I mentioned in Psalm 40, earlier, Psalm 40 is a corporate song. It's given to the choir master. It's David's effort to help others direct their hearts and lives to God. But I want to kind of just prove my thesis to you with your own life. Think of someone who has prayed for you in a meaningful way, and I hope you've experienced that. What did they say that made a difference? Was there a way they talked about God that helped you? Was there truth that they, that they shed light on that helped you see things better, see yourself better? How did they help you find hope in God through the way you prayed? How often do those precious moments with another brother or sister happen in your life? Times where you feel maybe completely transported to another world because a brother or a sister has helped you better see who you are and who your God is. It's to get there in a relationship, we have to share our lives. If you were to put a number on it, what percentage of your life do you share with somebody? Someone, anyone. Is there anyone you would say they know it all? They know all my secrets, all my sins, all my struggles, and they pray for me. They help me move toward Christ. Do you have a praying relationship like that? If we do not pray with each other, if we do not invite people like that into our lives to pray for us, we will forget who we are and what our relationships are about. Um, I don't know if you've seen a Netflix show, Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. It's all about decluttering our lives, getting our lives organized, using something she calls the KonMari method, which I believe is probably inspired by switching her first and last name around. Um, but I, I think for many of us in America, it's kind of nice. It's a good show. Generally, I think it's God's common grace to help us with the love affair we have with materialism in this country. Um, and I'll just take an honest look at what we have and ask, do I really need this thing? But ironically, I think her decluttering process also requires you to buy more stuff. I don't know if you notice that kind of subtlety. Like specifically, you have to buy dozens and dozens of these small boxes to organize all of your shelves and drawers. Oh, the other essential though that is in the show is you need help. Right? You need someone who will honestly come and help you have honest conversations about like the mess, about the clutter. Like, someone has to help you see, okay, do you need to keep collecting this thing? What is important to keep? What do you want to donate? What do you want to get rid of? Someone to walk with us through that. Where we need like the Marie Kondo to help us. Well, this is exactly why we must pray together and see prayer as a means of discipleship, because we need help decluttering each other's hearts and better worshiping Christ. It's what Jesus does in, in John eleven forty two. 42. He, he's praying um, in the context of raising Lazarus from the dead. And he says, Father, I am praying, and I'm praying this way on account of the people standing around so they might hear and believe. So there, Jesus is praying, and he's saying in his prayer, this is why I'm praying, God. I'm praying so that the people around me will hear the way I'm talking about you and believe in you. Do we ever kind of have this conscious awareness that that's part of why we're praying with people? We need to help one another declutter our hearts by knowing each other well 
and connecting our understanding of someone's heart with our understanding of who God is through prayer. So here are just some simple examples of how this has been well done well in my life. This past Sunday, I had some uh, intense counseling sessions I was going to have to go into, and it was kind of like boom, 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 one right after another, all marriage counseling. And uh, Pastor David Lee just kind of came up, came along me, he's like, hey, Tim, how's it going? And I'm like, you know, I've got some counseling cases coming up, and I'm just kind of trying to pray through those. And he stopped and prayed for me. And he said, this is what he said that I remembered. I like immediately went and wrote this down. He said, Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word that guides how we walk with each other. Now, that was like maybe just a simple phrase to him, but it just gave me this assurance that God has not like left me to myself, that he's with me, that he cares for me, that he's given his word to light the path of the, the dark and hard things I'm going to walk through with these couples this day. And I don't know if I would have gotten there without him praying for me. That was Sunday. And there have been other moments, great moments, when people have prayed for me. Like, there's been trials, great sufferings, where I remember someone saying, Father, grant Tim's heart courage to trust you, straight to hope in you during this trial. That was simple. But I never heard someone pray that my heart would have courage and strength to trust. And actually, that's what I needed. In the midst of all the hard stuff I was facing, I needed the courage and the strength to trust. And that wasn't just going to magically appear without leaning on God and asking for that. And you've heard me mention this before, but when, when I was kind of getting ready for a meeting where I knew people were angry with me, Pastor Kim saying, Father, help us to suffer these people's anger in order that we might love them well. And then just that prayer not only granted me release and relief from the pressure of this meeting, it's given me a trajectory of how I want to love people. Those are just a few examples of ways people have prayed for me that have helped me organize my life around who God is. They've helped me see God correctly. They've decluttered my heart. They discipled my heart to better know how to engage with God and pray for others. Some of you in this room have helped me in that way. But this is a, the challenge in praying with others. To pray together starts with being transparent with each other. And that's going to cost us. To ask for prayer is to let people to see your struggles. And there's risk involved in that. Like, what if they drop it? What if they take the fine china of your life and drop it on the floor? It's a risk. And I'm not saying just share your fine china with anyone. I do think it's good to build a relationship and understand where they are with God before you maybe you share certain things. But I want to encourage you, look at Christ. He advocated transparency in relationships. He had the ability to get to what really mattered in a person's life without missing the person. He didn't just know hearts. He showed himself to be the revealer of hearts. He wanted to help people see their own hearts, to have a sense of self-transparency. But then he also took the risk. He was incredibly transparent. He told Peter, James, and John in the garden um, in Mark 14, 34, that he was deeply troubled in spirit and sorrowful, even to death. He shares this with his close friends and says, this is how you can partner with me. Watch and pray. And they dropped it. They fell asleep. 
Christ was honest about his life. He helped other people be honest about their lives. And a lot of people, they either dropped it, or they didn't want much to do with it. It didn't stop him from sharing transparently about who he is. So what do we do with his example? So I think a good starting point would be this. Ah, don't cry as much as me. People won't want to share with you. <laughs> That's actually a good starting point. Another good starting point is uh, learn to be transparent with God and with one person. Who is one person you can be more transparent with going forward? Right? Transparency may have connotations of like TMI, right? too much information being labeled as an oversharer. And it's true that there can be um, a way we can open up about our lives that makes another person feel uneasy. Right? Like, for example, if I'm yelling about a situation, if I'm obviously angry about a person or a circumstance in my life that's difficult, I'm offering a kind of transparency that another person will have trouble getting into, getting deeper into. Or if a brother is sharing with me maybe some graphic detail about the kinds of lustful fantasies he's struggling with, then that level of transparency would almost definitely lead to sin. So there are kinds of honesty that are not actually helpful, that are yucky, like gossiping, or it, it, there are things that can be potentially damaging in transparency. Many times, though, people just think across the board, honesty means all those bad things. Like you're pouring out a bucket of personal details, and the other person is not going to know what to do with those details. It's just going to lay on the floor, and you don't know how to help them pick it up, because that was your bucket to pour but honesty does not have to mean something creepy or embarrassing. So what our church needs to see is a kind of honesty that is right and good and flourishes. And in a church community, it can simply start with you and I being more honest with the people we trust. There is a way to be honest that isn't harmful or disturbing, but is actually what life ought to be, the way relationships ought to be. On the other hand, you need to ask, are you ready for someone, anyone, to be transparent with you? Are you ready for what they might share, how they might open up? Have you ever shared with someone a, a particular trouble in your life and had it met with silence? When that happens in a relationship, it can feel like a denial. It, if that happens in a small group, someone shares their troubles with a small group and they hear nothing, like it, it feels like it, it can feel like you're completely shut out. When this is the pattern of a person's life, they will not open up. They will not share their sorrows easily. They will offer being polite or not being much of a burden. Or maybe worse things will happen. Maybe they will take this as an indicator that they don't want to be part of our church. Or maybe they will see this as an indictment against Christ himself and be confused and discouraged? Have you ever been tempted to be silent when you know of someone's sufferings? Maybe you haven't done something as awkward as not saying anything when they ask for prayer, but maybe you didn't move towards someone you knew who was hurting. And silence can be the same as turning away. It can be kind of our polite Christian version of avoiding the troubles of others, much like the, the priest and the Levite in Luke 10 that kind of carefully stepped around the wounded traveler. Maybe this is also why we don't get too close to people. Or maybe we have other ways of walking around people's troubles. Though we might not think that real help 
comes, excuse me, though we might think that real health comes through dramatic and new insights, most health comes in much more ordinary ways for us as Christians. We pray together. It comes through our personal engagement with each other. Sharing our hearts with each other. That helps us turn our attention to Christ through prayer. When we pray together, we are affirming the reality that we need God and we need Him together. And in prayer, we are taking our understanding of a person's life and connecting it to a vision of God so they will see clearly who He is and reorder their worship, grow their love, and begin to be transformed into the likeness of their Savior. And we get to participate in that. We get to take steps with them in loving Him more in the midst of whatever they are facing. And what will happen to us is that we will change as well. Our hearts will become ordered. Our loves will become clearly arranged around Christ. He will become the sun in our solar system and the planets will align. So why do we pray? Why do we pray together? I hope that, um, that this is something these truths can be carried with you into your small group times. And so I just want to pray for you now as you go into the small group. Father, I thank you for access to you. For you have given us a new song in our mouth through the many deliverances that you shower in our lives. You've given us an open ear so we can hear you speak to us. You have made multitude upon multitude of your thoughts known to us. It is innumerable the mighty deeds you do in our lives. It is indescribable the unrestrained mercy you pour out in our lives. You do not tire of forgiving us. You receive us back again and again and again. Oh Father, help us to organize our hearts around you. Help us to worship you. Help us to come alongside each other so that Christ would be magnified in our lives and in our relationships. 